Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the censorious Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, Eddie? Good. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad. I got to watch one of my favorite shows, so this is a, this is a quality episode. I appreciate you uh, placating me on this one and, and agreeing to this. No, 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 no placation necessary. This show is obviously timeless, and I had seen this episode before, actually. Um, so it was an it was a delightful rewatch. It's a classic. I think there's like forty some odd episodes that are like canonical. First two seasons, which is when Rod Sterling was kind of in charge of creative control, that get rerun every Easter on the Sci Fi Channel and all those marathons. Um, and this is, I think, widely regarded as one of one of the the more famous of the of the bunch. But uh, I thought it was a good of the kind of top five ones. I thought it would be the most interesting to look at uh, from more of a literary uh, political perspective. But uh, having just seen it for the first time in a while, what were your were your initial reactions? Oh, should we go and tell people what what we're talking about first? Which episode people can follow along and maybe go watch it. It's yes. literally twenty minutes long, so if you want to go watch it and then come back and rejoin us. That is always acceptable. Yeah, how refreshing it is to watch a 20-minute episode of something with this much thought-provoking content after sitting through three hours of the Batman last night. You know? <laughs> Dude, you're ripping on the Batman. You're going to lose all our viewers. That, a lot of people watch that movie, so uh, you have to watch your tongue. Since so... when did Gotham just become New York City? Every single person in the movie has a Brooklyn accent. I'm like, okay, I thought this was like a fictional city. But whatever. I think didn't Nolan's wasn't his Pittsburgh? Didn't he film most of The Dark Knight and stuff? I thought it was Chicago, but it could be it could be Chicago somewhere Midwest. I just like that was a cooler a cooler take for me the the Nolan uh, city look. You're out on New York. All um, I hear is you're you're out on New York. That's what we're taking away from this. Not a New York fan. Yep. And Were you uh, like try, these streets of season... Gotham way too clean for the, the New York that I know? <laughs> Not my town. <laughs> uh, this is what season one, episode twenty-two. Of That's Twilight the case. Zone? That is the case. It first aired in on March fourth, nineteen sixty, on CBS. Um, it was named by Time as one of the ten best Twilight Zone episodes, and it is "The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street," written by. Rod Sterling and directed by Ronald Winston. Is it is it Sterling? I think it's Sterling. You're right. It is Sterling. I add the extra T because he deserves weird. it. <laughs> I actually, um, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of another person whose name is Sterling, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe they retired it because he was so great at what he did that everyone else. He was great at what he did. Obviously, excellent. <laughs> Excellent writing, but probably the most iconic voice in uh, TV since, what, Orson Welles, you know? It's incredible how immediately recognizable it is, even for people who haven't really watched The Twilight Zone and how long ago this was. So you have to give it to him for that. Yeah. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do the intro or part of the intro in a Rod Sterling, a Sterling accent? I would. I need a script, but uh, otherwise, um, no. I yeah, I can't. I can do an, a Barack Obama impression though. <laughs> That's good. Uh, maybe we can get him to. I just saw that new nature uh, documentary, National Park show that Obama's narrating. 
pretty solid narration, I'd say. Not quite Rod Serling levels of narration, but not bad. Yeah. Anyway, to, to so, give people an intro, I've got the opening line here. So there's a whole intro, like there is for every uh, Twilight Zone episode, but the last two lines are, this is Maple Street on a Saturday afternoon. Maple Street in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. How's that? That was excellent. And I'll do an <laughs> impression of uh, Charlie later in the episode. Okay, good. Good, good, good. So we want to um, go through the plot. So this is where go watch the show. And you can just look up um, the monsters are due on Maple Street. Watch online. And there's a bunch of links to it. So you, you should be able to find it wherever you are in the world. So go watch it. If not, you can hear us talk about it from now on. Spoilers are all right. So we talk through it. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a very, like we said, a very quick kind of plot filled episode, less than 30 minutes takes place in the eponymous Maple Street. Um, There are residents playing around. It's a very normal day. And then there is a meteor, what appears to be a meteor, roar through the sky and crash just out of out of sight and out of uh, Maple Street's eyeline. And everyone this kind of brings everyone out into the street. And at first, everyone's kind of laughing along. They're like, whoa, you know, wasn't that interesting? Uh, it doesn't happen a lot around here. This is just typical suburban Maple Street. So we don't get a lot of uh, meteor crashes in this neck of the woods. Uh, but very soon, shortly after, all the power starts to go out everywhere. People start to freak out a little bit. Um, and one of the town, the children of the area, of Maple Street, says that it reminds him of a story that he'd read about an alien invasion. Uh, Tommy. Where, <laughs> classic Tommy. Just, I have uh, I have some uh, opinions about Tommy, but we can <laughs> yeah. get... We should can we, get should we do it now, or did you want to wait until... Uh... Okay, so Tommy comes out of the crowd, and he's, like, so authoritative, and he's like, look, I know how this goes. Uh, that was a spaceship, and they're aliens, but the aliens look exactly like us. I've read about it. I know this is how it's going. He's like, he's like, don't go into town, Mister. I forget his name. The main guy, Peter, Pete Van Horn, is trying to go into town, according to my my plot summary here. Okay, yeah, yeah. He's like, no one go into town. Like, you might not come back. And, and then they're like, okay, kid. What? And then he just keeps going, and then and then they like start to believe it, and then everybody is like on the side with this just crazy theory that it's just. That it's not just aliens evasion. Maybe you can make an argument that, yeah, okay, maybe aliens are one uh, solid uh, hypothesis for this um, situation. But it's not just the aliens basically. It's like, no, aliens that look specifically like us and are indistinguishable. He's like so insistent on that point. I'm like, come on, Tommy. Yeah, Tommy's really uh, doing a lot of the legwork here, getting people nervous and uh, yeah. ready for for uh, overreaction, let's say. And soon enough, sure enough, um, another resident named Les Goodman, which is, I realize now, quite an on-the-nose name, Les Goodman. It's, uh, it's a bit, <laughs> the satire is a yeah. bit. His, <laughs> his middle name is The Van. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and his, his wife, less good woman, they come out together and, um, basically his car starts all by itself. So nothing else in the area is on and suddenly his car starts and everyone starts to look at him very suspiciously asking him, you know, what is this about? Why, how, how is he able to get electricity? Not only that, but to start it without even turning the keys. Um, and he 
kind of laughs it off until they start to ask some more serious questions. And then one of the, the looky-loos, somebody else from the crowd, says that she actually has seen Les out, um, out of his house very late at night looking up into the stars. And so everyone's putting the dots together, thinking, wait a second. As if looking for something. Exactly. And he's like, you guys are crazy. This is just insomnia. I sometimes have to walk around. Sorry, I can't sleep like you guys. Like, get it together. Um, And you have this whole time. I think, what's the main guy's name who's trying to defend everyone and keep them from going crazy? That's the guy I can't remember his name. I I think his name is... Steve. I think his name is Steve. Steve. Yeah. 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 So Steve is kind of the avatar for the the more rational group. And he's like, guys, let's calm down a little bit. We there's going to be some sort of uh, rational explanation for why this car started. We know this guy. He's lived here for five years. Sometimes he goes outside. Let's not overreact. Yeah, I get the sense that Steve's the only one in the group that's like read a book before. <laughs> yeah. And Maple Street, you know, things are good on Maple Street. It's a uh, I think somewhat of a microcosm of like pre-social media America where people just didn't have to worry about uh, anything outside their little block, you know, they just, yeah, it's the Shire. It's, exactly. Um, it's fifties post-war America, you know, it's um, white picket fences and green lawns and uh, you know, stay at home mothers. Uh... <laughs> it's interesting because it, it does play like that, but it actually was written in the 50s. So it like actually was that. It's not even like no, yeah, totally. that. it's not even yeah. centers, like yeah. this is America. Like these um, are the suburbs that you live in if you're watching CBS on a Saturday. So Yeah, totally. Here's your world. Totally. Which makes it even more again, Twilight Zone is always ahead of its time. It's like still ahead of its time, weirdly, you know. We can talk about that. I want to talk a lot more about like Rod Sterling and the Twilight Zone in general after after we talk about. Um, it. So yeah, as you're picturing this episode, just picture you know your kind of uh, prototypical cliche at this point cliche you know fifties postwar America, um, and and you'll you know know exactly what we're talking about. Um, and then there's Charlie, and Charlie's the one leveling accusations kind of in every direction. He's, and he's like super drunk already, right? Like he just came out yeah, of the he's street super and he drunk. was just wasted. <laughs> and speaking of Brooklyn, he's definitely from Brooklyn, even though this is clearly like Indiana or some suburb of it's a solid you guess. Know, just Very solid white guess. America. Yeah. Um, so Brooklyn's like, wait, what's the deal, Les? What's going on with the car starting? You know, so he's just it's just like that. But every um everything that that out of the norm happens and every kind of like behavior that uh, a given individual or a given family has kind of starts to bubble up to the surface and then mm-hmm. is tried to like weaponized as reasons against them why they could be the aliens um and so at one point um someone accuses steve of working in his basement late at night on on something and he's like oh it's a radio and they're like why haven't we seen this radio <laughs> And they're like, and then his wife comes up and she's like, it's just a ham radio. We can show it to you now. So he's like, no, 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 no. We don't have to show them anything. We don't have to, you know, justify uh, to this mob mentality. Um, and so I think that is kind of an interesting uh, element of the story, right? As things just start to unravel. Yeah, absolutely. And so Steve continues to be the... Yeah, the audience avatar, sort of the only one not completely freaking out about, to this point, relatively innocuous coincidences, I would say. 
Yeah, but also Steve doesn't totally do a good job of reining people in, you know? When That's everyone's true. accusing less of stuff, Steve is kind of, well, less. Yeah, why did your car turn on, too? He's not saying, he's not being the first one. He's not saying we should go after him. He's just saying, like, let's hear him out, you know? Yeah. He says let's hear him out, but let's hear these accusations out, too, you know? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so you know these kind of these uh these accusations and these kind of uh people come under suspicion um throughout the course of the story and then we hear footsteps morgan because it's dark at this point right well even worse we've got a classic uh somebody brings out a gun and it's just like just in case you know like yeah i'm gonna have i'm gonna have this handy this may may or may not play into the plot later on a double barrel (laughs) shot definitely will And so we see, we hear ominous footsteps off screen. And it's dark at this point. Um, It started in the day, you know, a bright, sunny summer day. Now it's evening. And still all the power's out on the block. And so... The suburbs get dark with no lights. They get really dark, yeah. And you can see the stars, you know. This is what's on all the advertisements when you're in the city. Yeah. And so they hear footsteps and it's just... It's like a heartbeat, you know? And then they see a vague figure at the end of the block, and the vague figure is not saying anything. And they aren't calling out to it either. And they have a shotgun in hand. And Charlie grabs it from Steve's from Steve's hands and he shoots. And the figure falls. And then they run. And who is it, Morgan? Is it an alien? Nope. It's classic. It's Pete Van Horn, who had gone to check out if the neighborhood, the other neighborhood nearby had also lost power. It was just a sweet, old, caring man named Pete Van Horn. Look, I'm not here to defend Charlie shooting a man dead in the street out of, uh, you know, erroneous suspicion. I'm not here to defend that. But it took a pretty damn long time for Pete to walk one block. It took like hours. It was day when he left. It was the dead of night when he came back and he wasn't like oh hey guys it's pete i don't know i mean how was he supposed to call in dude this is before uh cell phones they got no power you know he went over no he was just at the end of the block and he's just they were having a beer towards them. he was he was like yo those guys are going nuts back there can i chill over here on like floral street for a little bit before i go back to maple my wife's really been you know up in my grill lately just, just needed some time away factory work's been pretty tough here in the 50s like can only build so many car engines before it gets to your head. Let's let's cut Pete a little slack, all right? All right. <laughs> so Charlie shoots him dead, and they're like, "Look at what you've done, Charlie! You saw? I didn't know." And then Charlie starts running, and then uh, he goes to his house, and then Charlie's house is the only one on the block where all the lights uh, light up inexplicably Classic. when he's on the uh, the stoop. And like, what's the deal, Charlie? Why is your uh, why are your lights on? He's like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you who it is. I know who it is. I know who the alien is. And then he blames thirteen-year-old Tommy because <laughs> it's the kid. It's Tommy. And then brilliant starts... deflection, I will say, by Charlie. Brilliant deflection. He had thrown the kid under the bus. And then all of the crazy townspeople are like, well. It was this kid's theory, and it has panned out. It's like, I don't know about this kid. 
you know, started turning on the kid, you know. And of course, the kid's mom tries to tries to play uh, peacemaker. She's like, "No, he's just a weird kid." Sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Come on, let's be let's be reasonable here. Like, like I know else? I've made some mistakes <laughs> with this kid. <laughs> yeah. And so... yep. And then all the power starts to go on and off everywhere. And people start yeah, freaking kind of out, flashing. running around, yeah. throwing rocks at each other. There's a whole full-on riot in the town or in the, the just the street. And then you want to do the great, you know, Twilight Zone, what made them famous, their end reveal. Let's just say the camera zooms back slowly and you see a model of the town and chaos in the, uh, in the, in the background. In the foreground, you see two figures talking, and who are they? It's two That's aliens. the question. Just <laughs> like, just like freaking Tommy said, aliens who had infiltrated the town, but they had not dressed up like humans or had taken over the bodies of humans in any sort of invasion of the body snatchers type way, but had just used uh, some sort of device to mess with the power to elicit suspicion amongst themselves. And they look at each other and they say, I can't remember the exact quote. Do you have it on hand? Um, they say something along the lines of, um, he's like, uh, it's easy. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find and it's themselves. <laughs> it's, the ending is pretty on the nose. I will say. <laughs> I've got the, I've got the, it's almost the less good man of uh, conclusion. There it is here. He, so the end uh, part of the, Rod, so then Rod Serling comes on and, and sums up for us and he goes, for the record, prejudices can kill and suspicion can destroy. And the thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's so iconic. <laughs> it's like it's like the end of uh, the Barnhouse effect, you know, reporting yeah, Barnhouse yeah. effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, basically the idea of these aliens is like, yeah, we're going to go like undermine this planet, but we don't even have to set foot on it. We can just, you know, mess with the electricity and these, uh, human beings will do it to themselves. You know, that's how they're subverting and taking over our planet. It's almost the antithesis of uh, a rival, right? It's like the aliens came and like, no, they just want you to get, they're like trying to help us and we don't fall apart. They're like, no, <laughs> their biggest threat is themselves. We just need to get them to get their shit together. Whereas the yeah. aliens are like, no, we just need to like, you know, flip the match a little bit and this place is going to burn. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, I think that part of what makes this episode so brilliant well, it's just like um, the themes are timeless, obviously. But you got to think this is like a in the moment, you know, this is 1960. So yeah. you got to think that they're critiquing McCarthyism, right? Absolutely. I think it's at the time would have been seen even more so as a pretty direct take on McCarthyism. Uh, so Charlie's the kind of Joseph McCarthy in this uh, in this episode, basically. And, you know, for any, uh, hey, we've, we've got listeners from all around the world. We've got listeners in the UK. We've got listeners in Mexico. So if those, um, some listeners aren't familiar with McCarthyism, it's basically uh, in the 50s, Joseph McCarthy, this uh, senator uh, in the U.S. Senate, uh, just uh, basically kind of started leveling unfounded accusations towards uh, left-leaning 
uh, I don't, not even just people in Congress, like just people in the culture, uh, in, in everyone from like of, actors to politicians to just yeah. anyone who was even remotely famous at all was at risk of being declared a communist. Of being, yeah, declared a communist. So it's kind mm -hmm. of the, the second red scare. Um, and essentially, I think there's still some kind of lingering um, effects of that. If you look at the way that Bernie, you know, was kind of covered um, or combated during the election. But anyways, that's a separate topic. But yeah, so I think that would be very much kind of top of mind for um, a lot of, well, for Rod Serling, certainly uh, in this time, just yeah. kind of leveling unfounded yeah. accusations and destroying people's lives um, without any kind of concrete evidence. And then also, I think what's fascinating about this episode is that it doesn't matter what the unexpected um, thing is, it, it automatically becomes interpreted as evidence, right? So if it's a car starting, or if it's a light flashing, or if it's insomnia, none of these things have anything in common other than, uh, you know, this kind of paranoid uh, thinking that it could be seen as something out of the norm and anything out of the norm is, is dangerous and scary and therefore could be emblematic of invasion or aliens, et cetera. Absolutely. And I think that the reason it's so, I mean, it, it holds up so well is because it does touch on some of these essential themes. I think at the time, obviously McCarthyism, but you could really apply this to anything today about censorship, about, you know, uh, prejudice, about any of these types of concepts. Cancel culture. <laughs> Don't get me started on cancel culture. <laughs> Exactly. And so I think, I don't know, we can talk more about this episode, but I also just want to talk about Rod Sterling and the Twilight Zone in general and kind of like what it represents for like American sci-fi in general. Um, I think if you watch the original like 40 episodes of the Twilight Zone, you'll see it's, it's almost the, the problem with like Dirty Harry and, and Die Hard and a couple of these other things where they were so novel that they've just been remade like a thousand times since then. Um, I think it's very difficult to find an, a good episode of The Twilight Zone that hasn't been remade as like a modern science fiction movie because there were so many good ideas baked into like 30 minute episodes that were just very ready for adaptation. Um, but done so in a way that was, I think, much more entertaining and thought provoking than a lot of other forms of fiction at the time. I think that's one thing that stands out about The Twilight Zone to me is that even if you don't care and we've talked about this with in bruges and some other of the like fictionalized literature and movies that we like even if you don't care about mccarthyism you don't care about censorship or cancel culture or any of this stuff you could watch this episode really enjoy the twist and have had a great time and recommend this to someone else and i think that is such a hard balance to have especially in 30 minutes i don't sure any anyone i like any working um, TV shows in the last few years could have kind of this much packed into such a short episode. Um, but the, he was so good at putting together just kind of quick punches that not only got at some of these really at the time, obviously this is like the fifties and sixties. So it's not like everything was hunky dory in America. Uh, getting at some of these really contentious issues in a way that people who may not even agree with him would be willing to watch because they were just so damn entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that he does it in a way that doesn't threaten anybody's politics, but also 
directly threatens people's politics. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. The idea of it's not, it's, even though the themes are very overt, it's not over in the sense of, um, I don't know. Um, you know, Charlie obviously is Republican and Steve obviously is a Democrat or anything like that. Or this person is a Protestant, this person's a Muslim or any, not that, not that. Not on Maple Street. Not on Maple, <laughs> not Street. On Maple Street. No, I, so I just think, and that's part of it too, that like this can, this can make it to air in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, and um people can have these kind of thought provoking ideas and like let it permeate themselves uh, rather than it being this kind of polemical kind of politically charged message, which I feel like would come through today, you know? Absolutely. Do you know the kind of Rod Serling's Serling's background at all? No, but I'm waiting for you to tell me. Well, I I mean, it's pretty much what you would expect, I suppose. I mean, ever, I think, you know, I might've, written about him as like a you know in like fourth or fifth grade as like an american you know when they make you write those i don't know if they make you do that anymore but he we get he it dude a, you were a smart wonderkind no, I said, child i really was i was essentially in... tommy and i was a nerd sci-fi uh, viewer and the only people that would listen to my stories about aliens were people who had to read my book reports but um he he essentially was like went to the war and then came back as like a radio kind of executive got a job and essentially um, got like barred from Hollywood because he was writing more overtly about censorship. He mentioned in one of his first kind of hits that it was actually kind of referencing the Emmett Till murder. And he got like taken off the air and, and like basically like not fired, but like kicked off from producing things on like national television. And so he sort of created the Twilight Zone as a way of talking about racism and talking about censorship and things without like having the wrath of the the corporations and the large companies being able to shut him down. And so he literally, he wasn't even a sci-fi fan, really. He just used sci-fi because it was the only way he could essentially give the people it's their medicine is what he kind of thought. And he was sort of known as this kind of cantankerous uh, like activist who was like, yeah, like a lot of people disliked him because they knew what he was doing, but they couldn't really take him down for saying that like aliens were prejudiced, whereas they would have <laughs> been able to do that if he, you know, mentioned Emmett Till again and these sorts of things. So I've always thought he was, you know, it's it brilliant to this day, but at the time I can't even, it's very hard to put ourselves in the shoes of an America that was that, you know, sexist and racist and things, but like being able to do this and put your career on the line for like a science fiction show that you can use to try to address some of these issues in society I've always thought was pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. I think that um, this type of use of uh, science fiction, uh, Twilight Zone, um, it's a great kind of example of that uh, Emily Dickinson line, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of like, by taking an oblique angle uh, on an issue you can get past um, a lot of the barriers that people would otherwise have to it um, because they don't immediately like see, I guess um, it's not that you're trying to communicate a certain politics. It's just that you're trying to make people think deeply about certain issues without, without prescribing where they come out on the other side of these issues. Right. So even in the, in the, in the end, when he says prejudices can kill, suspicion can destroy, 
that's not necessarily a conserv conservative or a liberal message. It's more um, just like a human truth and how you interpret that. And I think integrate that into your understanding of disaster situations, let's say, is completely up to the individual, it seems, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's, it, it reminds me of the story about um, William Shatner and, and Uhura, I'm forgetting the actress's name, I'll have to look it up. But the the first interracial kiss on, on broadcast television was in was it Star, Star Trek. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, they weren't sure about it. And basically, um, Martin Luther King Jr. said, no, this is like amazing. Like this is essentially saying, you know, much more eloquently what we're trying to get across that like this was a way to to get the ball rolling and to like make people realize and I think especially for Star Trek which was meant to be like the future it was meant to be like okay yeah once once we progress once humanity gets over its petty squabbles this will be an everyday sort of thing and I think that's sort of along the same lines that that Rod Sterling was kind of using these same themes to get at um and so it, it was sci-fi at the time all through the 60s 70s um 50s 60s and 70s was used for this purpose but very often not as uh, well put together and I think that's a very that's often the more difficult part right everyone can come up with things that they think about the world need to change but putting them into a 25 minute package where it has it touches on everything from McCarthyism to alcoholism to the availability of firearms to you know Vietnam War uh, activism is pretty damn incredible yeah totally i mean who knows what uh what uh mlk watched uh, on tv in his free time but i love the idea of mlk like unwinding to some star trek you know? <laughs> it's hard to picture but yeah that uh i mean who knows he, he at least watched that episode according to, to to lore so hopefully he watched the twilight zone as well i wouldn't be surprised yeah um how long did it run you said 40 episodes is that it, it only it so i mean they've rebooted it a bunch of times um uh-huh. the original series yeah i'm pretty sure it was only two maybe three seasons that's crazy so there were three original seasons and then they brought it back like later on um but the main like two seasons ran back to back and then there was a delay and they brought it back for another couple of seasons um, was it but a lot of the, when they brought it back? Was it the same guy? For that first time, he like was still helping write some, but it wasn't all him later on. He pretty much, the first two seasons, I think, are mostly Rod Serling wrote pretty much all the episodes. And then they brought in some other writers. I mean, there's still good episodes in those other seasons. The more, like, the more recent reboots, I think there's one from like 2012 and even a more recent one than that. And I think pretty much widely seen as not being good at all and of course if you're comparing yourself to the original twilight zone which is like one of the greatest series of all time um that's tough but even as just modern sci-fi i think it's a tough it's a tough um formula to put together which is why i think even the original the initial run kind of burnt out if you have to promise like a devastating twist every time it's almost like agatha christie like in the end she like had to start making it so the most obvious character was the murderer because people were like so into her head trying to guess who it was and just figure out how she was going to be tricky she had to like get meta with who the murderers were and stuff like if you have to promise a a socially relevant like incredible twist every time there's going to be some clunkers and that just becomes more and more complicated the more great ideas you you pan out and so you kind of you need some some genius to drive that along yeah, I think Jordan Peele rebooted it for CBS a couple of years ago. Twilight Zone. I um, have not seen it, but 
I haven't heard that it's amazing, but I haven't seen it, to be fair. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard that it's amazing either. Well, there was one TV critic named Andy Greenwald who said, like, yeah, I mean, that's cool that Jordan Peele, like, wants to do this, but also, like, we still have the Twilight Zone. Like, I don't know why it has to yeah. be rebooted because that's true. we have that's the Twilight true. Zone. Like, it's still mm-hmm. relevant. Uh, that's the thing that's why it's it's you really should be you should be rebooting shows that had great concepts and just poor execution and this was obviously not that this was okay so i wanted to ask you a question what is it about twists in general that you think add to like literature or like what where's the what is the twist what is the relevance of like a good twist in terms of kind of your degree or how you think about a good story because we've done a couple stories that have great twists and there's something that stands out to me i just something about a really well executed twist that makes the story so much richer, even in retrospect. I'm thinking of like the prestige or these things where the actual pre-twist portions of the story just become even more uh, kind of like relevant and salient after the twist. It can be done really poorly as well, right? You can have terrible twists that ruin things and not Shyamalan, um, but uh, you can also have great twists also and not Shyamalan. It's really a, a mixed bag, but yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any input as far as like a literary critic, but just as like a writing kind of craftsman, twists are really effective at keeping readers' attention. And I think that that's an invaluable um, asset that they bring to a story. If um, if they not just keep their attention, but make them reevaluate everything before the twist, right? And so I think that reevaluation can lead to more interpretations um, and hopefully having that stick in their mind for longer uh, if there's a good twist. I know that um, stories that have an effective twist certainly like stay with me longer than stories that don't typically. Um, so I'm thinking of like Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, um, the ending of that movie, there's a twist and it just kind of, I don't know lives rent free in my head as the kids say these days you know and i don't think it would had it not had that twist because it would be more of a straightforward story and just kind of would follow the mechanisms of you know three x stories before it and i probably wouldn't think too much about it whereas i feel like i don't know now maybe 21st century stories we almost expect there to be one or multiple twists because we've seen everything done before once right so we want something to make it feel fresh or new in some way yeah i mean that makes sense i think it's especially when they you can pull it off there's something just really enjoyable about having a great twist Um, well they have to be they have to be like scaffolded correctly exactly exactly in the sense of like there's some bad twists out there yeah well twists are bad when you don't give the audience enough information like the twists should be predictable if you're reading or watching extremely closely and if they're completely unpredictable then it's not an effective twist you know yeah it's more like a direct machina right yeah an act of the gods exactly so i think that um i think that what makes yeah twist kind of like delightful for an audience or for a reader is that there's part of you that's like oh i knew all along or like kicking yourself out like oh i I felt something but i wasn't quite sure and you're and it it requires more investment i feel like you know absolutely i mean i think that's why the twist and the prestige works so well too is because it's the theme like the the concepts of the movie are about kind of 
dedication and to one's craft and also the fact that it's about magic so having a twist in a show a movie about magic makes a lot of sense right it's like there's a final act the whole movie is built into stages just like the uh, so it's just brilliant but there's lots of twists like that and there's a for every one of those there's a the village type twist where it's just like okay (laughs) yeah all right but maybe maybe there's something that's like that's emblematic of life in terms of like there's so many unexpected twists that happen in the course of our life that if we see it played out in the, from the safety and distance of a fictional story, then we can almost train our brains in some way to anticipate twists, unexpected and sometimes unwanted twists in our own life. And maybe that prepares us a little bit more for when those twists happen, you know, so that we can kind of adapt and move forward. I don't know. That's a great point. I think it kind of reminds me of the, I'm just like ruining endings of movies. If you haven't seen No Control, then skip ahead or just, <laughs> but uh, that reminds me of the twist of, uh, in, in, I mean, maybe not it's a twist, but when he, when he gets hit by a car, which is kind of out of nowhere, like usually in movies, yeah. the main character doesn't just get hit by like a car off screen or like the main character in that movie dies off screen. And, but I think that's, that's also like thematic, right? It's about that exact thing you're talking about that like life doesn't follow a script. Life is chaotic and it's the, the, the main like evil character in that movie is kind of the embodiment of like chaos and evil and so it makes sense that these random things would happen that don't necessarily follow this linear pattern um but these are of course like all-time classics i i will say i enjoy a good twist even when it's not like perfectly supremely executed with theme but is just solidly built into the foundation of the story itself um but yeah, anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Is there anything else you want to say about this episode? We might have to do another. I mean, there's so many good Twilight Zone episodes. I was just but, thinking that. I was like, depending if this episode does well, and by well, I mean in the hundreds of thousands of listeners. Somewhere so between two and 350,000. You're going to check then, the URLs and it's going to be like, Morgan, did you listen to this 50 times? So you, we had to do another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Um, but the other Twilight, well, there's two other Twilight episodes that um, come to mind for me in terms of ones I've seen before and, and they just kind of have stayed with me. One being the diner one. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That, that to me, you made an iconic piece of fiction is if I can just say the diner and you know what I'm talking about in terms of the Twilight Zone. It's crazy. You know, that's how there's good it is. There's so many good ones. And then the other one, and I feel like the diner one is similar to this. In, True. In but the other one that I think is phenomenal and very relevant to today is the one where there's like a six-year-old kid. Oh, I was gonna, this is going to be the one that I said. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. We should do this well, one. We tell us about one. it. Just like give us, you know, the quick uh, uh, premise. Essentially, like what if you endowed a six-year-old kid with, superpowers that he is just completely incapable of controlling and he has the emotion of a six-year-old kid so if anyone makes him mad in any way you know he'll turn you into a plant it's basically like if you gave godlike powers to a child and there's a lot of uh there's a lot to be taken away in terms of you know military technology in terms of emotion in terms of kind of introspective um kind of looks at like what it what how do you organize society around these types of like supernatural gifts um but yeah brilliant brilliant story also terrifying yeah it's impossible to watch that in 2022 and not think of trump yeah and i think at the I, time it's about nuclear weapons as well right yeah 
Um, so that's another one that, that um, we should probably uh, tackle because I think, and, and maybe this is like a little subgenre of this pod because I feel like there's uh, narrative continuity between Report on the Barn, House Effect, The Monsters sure. Are Doing Maple Street, and that one. Um, Another one I would have so, said is Walking Distance, which is the one where it's just sort of like a early time travel where this guy, like his car breaks down, he shows up at a, an old town and he sees, he basically, it's his town from when he was a kid and he runs into his younger self and, you know, he has an epiphany and those sorts of things. But it's the type of thing that's been done 60 times since, but this was really like the original kind of uh, foray into that sort of time travel, meet your younger self and convince them to make better decisions that don't make it so you end up in a soulless office job type episode yeah um that sounds great well we if there's a clamoring people reach out to us because we have uh we've got many of these we could do and they're terrific also i feel like most of the time we're like watch this movie and then but that's kind of a lot of work people have to do these are really quick so you could legitimately we like this episode we're about to release is about twice as long as the episode we're talking about. So <laughs> you could go watch the episode and then come yeah. back for the commentary pretty easily. So I feel like a little, a little better about recommending something this short. Yep. Yep. Shout out to uh, Laura listening from Tijuana, Mexico. I just always like to give shout outs to people who are like, Oh, I listen. I'm like, what? <laughs> And then shout yeah. out to uh, my brother Sandy. I thought he gave us up, gave up on us uh, long ago, but apparently he's still eager to listen. So. Is is that the case? Well, we'll definitely <laughs> shout outs to, to everyone out there. Um, All the fans. Yeah, we'll give a different shout out every episode. I know we've got some some loyal listeners who we we appreciate very much. But yes, especially if you listen all the time, give us a give us a ring and let us know that uh, you want a specific episode or topic. doesn't have to be Twilight Zone, but those are definitely welcome. Yeah, give us an, uh, give us an idea. Later. Adios. Humanoids. <laughs>